Well, first of all, thank you. It's been a, it's a pleasure anytime I get an opportunity to, to speak to a group of men. I've already been blessed by your, uh, your organization. Tom was so kind to provide a pen that was specially made and, and, uh, and with the admonition to, uh, to learn and to love and to lead. And I, I'll tell you, I've just been already blessed and all I did was show up so far. <clears throat> so that's a great thing. You know, it's funny when David said, he goes, you may not have heard of Roy Moore. And I'm sitting there going, no, you've probably heard Roy Moore a few times uh, over the last few months. And I'm not that guy, okay, just so you understand. Uh, <clears throat> I've had to explain that when you deal with children all the time and you're, you're working in a nonprofit, you have to explain a few times why I'm not related. He's not in my tree. I'm just, just me. So uh, <clears throat> just the way that works. Well, listen, one of the things that you didn't hear in the uh, uh, description of my bio was that I'm a pastor. I'm not a pastor. Um, I, uh, in talking with David in terms of coming up here to share, one of the things that he asked me to do, he said, just come up and share your story. So today I'm going to be speaking on the topic of mission, but I'm doing so through the stories of my life, the place where, places where God has written his story through my life. And, um, and I would like to share that with you in the hopes that there are some things that you can learn. And, and uh, that's kind of code when somebody of my age stands up in front of a group. That's code to say, I paid a lot of tuition to learn a lot of lessons, and I'm trying to minimize your cost along the way <laughs> to the extent we can, right? And one of the things that I particularly like about being in front of men is you understand, we can sort of be frank and understand one another. And I know in a group like this that there are people who enjoy speed. And what I mean by that is last, last October, a buddy of mine called me and said, Roy, he said, have you ever done, gone to a racing school? And I said, no, never done that. I don't, I don't know anything about it. He said, well, let's go to this racing school. I said, okay, well, we'll give that a shot and we'll see what it's like. So we went down to this Porsche racing school in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, we go down there, and, and now I had a concept of what the accelerator's like, because, you know, everybody has those testosterone flashes when you're young, and, you know, and every once in a while you might exceed the speed limit a little bit on the Florida Turnpike. Don't know if we have any police here, but I'm just saying every once in a while it happens. And, uh, and I got that. And so you get in this car, and they, and they put you on this racetrack. And this one's a 2.3-mile, 17-turn, you know, 60-foot elevation change racetrack. So this is, this is something where there's lefts and rights and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and you follow this, uh, this pro, and so he's driving and he's, he's motivating you to, to continue to go around this racetrack. And it's sort of unnatural, okay? Because how many times have you followed somebody and they're saying, speed up, come on, get on the accelerator, get on the accelerator. You know, and, and they, they cleverly disguise it. They don't talk about going a, pardon me, a certain number of miles per hour. They talk about squeeze. So they said, squeeze the accelerator, 100%, 80%, you know, trying to get you to go. And, uh, and when you top a hill, at about 110 miles an hour, and you're only doing a 60-foot elevation change, you feel that. You feel that, and you notice it. All of a sudden made sense, because when I saw a bowl of uh, motion sickness pills in the, in the, in the pit, I, you know, set out there like, like you would see mints at a Chinese restaurant on the way out, okay? I fully understood after those few laps. So I understood the accelerator, but here's what I didn't understand. I didn't fully appreciate the importance of the brake. And, um, and, and the idea is you apply the brake, but you don't turn at the same time. So when you're going into a turn, the idea is not to preserve as much speed as you can to get out of the curve, because that's actually slower. The idea is to slow down as much as you possibly can so that you're flipping off of the brake to turn. And what they would call that is a hard turn. And you may have heard in the introduction that, that, uh, that David shared, it says, 
is uh, one of the, t the, the themes or the, the topic that I would say today, or at least the, I don't know, the caption for my, for, for my uh, discussion is hard terms. There are several places where in the pursuit of a mission, after coming under the authority of the Great Commission, there was a mission that was laid out for me. And, um, and that's what I want to speak to today. I want to talk about the first hard turn that I, that I ran into, and it was a salvation experience. And I'm going to share with you the, the highlights of that, because it starts when I was quite young. Now, this is going back in the 60s, <clears throat> and uh, that's where you're supposed to act like I don't look that old, but I appreciate that. Um, it starts back in the 60s. My older brother, my eldest brother, is 13 years older than me. I have a middle brother who's seven years older than me. Guess who the surprise was in this particular family? Um, but I was six years old watching my brother. He went out to college at 19, and uh, he was what I would later understand to be kind of a runaround kind of guy, okay? The smoking, the drinking, the, the cussing, the whole, the whole nine yards. And uh, my dad and I uh, got in the car, went out to, to visit him in, in college. This was one of those uh, surprise kinds of visits. And I walked in. I had no idea my brother had such artistic flair. I walked into his apartment. There was this great pyramid made out of these cans, must have been something called Schlitz, who was the, who was the developer of this particular product. And I, I thought it was cool. My dad was not enamored with it at all and decided that that was not uh, something that he was going to celebrate at that particular point in time. Uh, and that's back, by the way, when they were steel cans and you actually pulled the top off. That was a long time ago. Um, so when we came back, you know, and, and, and time went on, he, my brother, his name is Fred. Fred, Fred met a young lady, and she was a Christian. And uh, he fell in love. And, you know, guys, only the way that we can understand it, and I'll share in this room, it's the kind of love where you can't talk right. You used to have an IQ. You get in their presence. You can't think straight, right? That kind of love is what I'm talking about. So he fell in love with her, and she introduced him to a man named Jesus or to a person named Jesus. Now, I'm observing this as a kid. And I'd like to tell you, as soon as I saw this fundamental transformation, all the things that I knew that defined my eldest brother fundamentally changed very quickly. Very quickly. I didn't understand it because I was too young. So I'm a slow learner, too. So let's fast forward, and I go to age 19. At age 19, I get married. Uh, my mother married at 15. When I was born in the South. I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. We get, we'd start things early. So I got married at 19. We thought with my wife we were going to basically uh, do something where we'd travel around a little bit and, um, and enjoy life after getting out of college. And uh, that was the plan, but God purposes, God's purpose prevails because about 18 months later after being married, we find we're pregnant. Now, I didn't understand how this could take place. I mean, I understand how it took place, but I didn't understand how we had the equivalent of the palace guard up and, and a you know, locked vault on things because, and I'll share with you only because it's relevant, she was on birth control and an IUD. Now, here's the issue with an IUD. There are risks associated with an IUD, which we didn't understand at the time. So when we went to the doctor, we found out that he proclaimed that it was a tubal pregnancy. Now, I'm not here to explain women's plumbing because that's a whole other topic and things I'm still trying to figure out. But punchline is, is the, the fertilized egg was in a fallopian tube. It was in a tube such that um, what was happening is that the, the pregnancy was not viable. Baby wouldn't live, and if we allowed it to continue to grow there, it would explode, and uh, basically my wife would die from internal bleeding. So that was the prognosis. So we were you know, disappointed in that. It's funny how God uses things to change your, your view of that time. So I'm driving home, and I get home, and I call my brother, and I share with him the news. And he says to me, he goes, Roy, he said, I don't have peace about this. He said, can I pray about this tonight and talk to you in the morning? 
I said, sure. So it's in the morning, and um, the phone rings. And at this point in time, at that time, phones ring on a table somewhere, on a wall somewhere. It wakes the whole house up, okay? So the phone's ringing. It's about 6.30 in the morning. He calls me and said, listen, I have an appointment for you at the doctor's. Uh, there's a doctor I need you to go see because I do not have peace that there's a problem here. And we went over and saw the doctor, and as you can imagine, what we found out was we had a healthy child. And by his faith, by his faith, I now have my daughter, and I have my son-in-law, and I have my, my four grandkids. And it was because of his faith. And a little bit after she was born, I came to accept the Lord as my uh, Lord and Savior. And, uh, and I share that because there are a couple of lessons that I learned in that. Now, granted, I wasn't a Christian before then, but then when I look back on that, what I discovered was is what... What somebody does screams above what they say. I saw the fundamental transformation of my brother. He didn't know I was watching him, but I was all the time, all the time. The second thing was is the power of prayer for intercession. It was incredibly powerful, and, um, and I wanted to make sure and maintain that, and frankly, that's important to me in terms of the things that we're doing right now. But once I accepted the Lord, I then became under the authority of his word. Right? And, I, and, and coming under the authority of his word, I accepted, as I said before, the Great Commission. But what is my role? What am I supposed to do? Because that is the question at the end of the day. What's my mission? He knit me in my mother's womb, right? Fashioned me for a purpose. There is something that I have, as God would say, the different parts would be used for instruments of righteousness. And I'm sitting there going, well, what is it that I am uniquely gifted to do? Well, my first mission, after that hard turn, First mission was to get to know him more, was to get to know the word more, was to get to understand the Lord more. Um, I, I love the way Henry Blackaby described it in Experiencing God. I don't know if y'all went through that, but you know, God reveals himself, his purposes, and his ways through the Bible, prayer, church, and circumstance. All of those things, sort of understanding the totality of that was something I would do. And I would spend about six years, eight years doing that. Now, that's too long, to be quite blunt. But what happened is I kicked off my career. So I started, I went from graduate business school, I went up to, uh, I started working with some companies, spent four years working in a management consulting firm. And when I was doing that, I was traveling a lot. I mean, a lot. So for example, while we then had two young children, I had my wife at home, um, I was spending a, uh, time on a plane that would equate to about 200 nights away from home my last year that I was doing that. And while I was doing very heady stuff, my last, my last client, for example, was what you would call uh, a fruit company in Silicon Valley, which now is a big deal by the name of Apple, but at the time was not. So there was a guy named John Scully who was running the place and trying to build it, and he was the bad guy because he had just cast out Steve Jobs. And working in that scenario was a very, it was fun, and it was exciting. But here's what was going on. I knew that things weren't necessarily going well at home. And my first mission after God is to my family. <clears throat> So I made the choice, I made the hard turn choice, which says I'm gonna put aside career and I'm gonna go back to Texas. There was a family owned business that uh, I returned to there. And when I returned to the business, it was in the telecom field. Um, there was a period of what I would call incredible favor. And so from about the age of 30 to about the age of 50, it seemed like whatever, whatever that I happened to be involved in, from a financial and business perspective went really well. And by the way, today, the things that I'm sharing that went well, that's God. For the missteps and for the things that get, go sideways, those are on me. But his redemptive power still comes back, and I'm thankful for that. 
But there were 20 years where it just seemed like one thing after another would go well. My mission as I would come to understand it there was to really financially bless the ministries, financially bless some of the nonprofits. And, and I felt good about that. I felt good about that. I have to tell you, I'm on the other side of that equation now on the nonprofit side. And <clears throat> words can't express how good it feels when you're running a nonprofit or a ministry and there are people who care enough about what you're doing, who believe they are called to support what you're doing, where no matter what level that is, that it shows up. Because you know why? Because it's not about, and especially in the ministry that I'm in and, and the other ministries, it's not about what we're doing, it's what we're doing to advance what God's called us to do. And the affirmation that you give makes a big difference. So that's what I was doing. That's in essence uh, the role that I felt like I had. That was the mission for that period of time. But there was a hard turn, because that's on the public side. That was on the professional side, on the financial side, and that's what looked good outside. But the reality is, is there were some things that were troubling me on the inside. So if we step over into the personal story, when I came back and I went into that business, I decided to, in addition to sort of coaching some of the kids, you know, teams and, and that sort of thing, and getting really actively involved, that I was going to get involved in the church in a much more, much deeper way. And there's a gentleman who said, he said, Roy, hey, why don't we teach? Because we were attending a, a, um, a Baptist church, and when you attended the Baptist church, at least the one we were, there was a 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service. And if you went to the 9 o'clock service at 11 o'clock, there was a Bible study or, uh, you know, groups that would get together and basically dive deeper. Well, there wasn't a couple's Bible study at 11 o'clock, so he said, let's teach that. Well, I'll tell you, we prayed and we thought and we prepared and we thought, God is calling us. My mission is to teach. And that's the way I'm going to serve in addition to the financial side. So we get all prayed up. We, we um, go through with the pastor. They introduce it into the church, about 800 people in the church at that time. And we show up that first day. And the first day when I get there, we have a room full of six. The other teacher and his wife. Me and my wife, and somebody that looked suspiciously like my eldest brother and his wife. So that was the team that we had. And that was one of those things that was like a crisis of faith in some ways, because I'm like, did I hear you right, Lord? Did I hear you right? By December, there were 100 people that were in that, that class. By May, there were 200 people in the class. Over the course of the next several years, we had about 35 to 40% of the church that would come through that particular ministry. God's hand was incredible, it's just, just on things that are going. I love the way my pastor would express, he said sometimes, he said God's hands on everything, but sometimes he puts both hands on some things. And I said, thank you Lord, because he was putting it on there. But that's where it led up to a hard turn. And here's the hard turn. The hard turn is I filed for divorce. It turns out that during all that travel, during all the things that were going on, that uh, as I was going out the front door, somebody was coming in the back door. And when I share that in a room full of guys, you know what I mean. You know how that would hit you in the pit of your stomach. You feel like somehow you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You feel betrayed. You don't know how to feel, to be quite blunt. And I'm not Hosea. I'd like to say I was, but I wasn't. I didn't have the ability to sort of weather through that anymore. I'd done it for many years. And it was a challenge. It was a challenge because here's the deal. I, I said, I stepped down. I did not confess somebody else's sins. I didn't feel like that was my responsibility. But when I stepped down, there were people that began to question, and this is what I was concerned about, is, 
If it, Roy and Deanne can't make it, how can we make it? And I felt like I took something that God, where God was using me and advancing, and I felt like I threw it away. And honestly, at the way I felt at that particular point in time, I felt like God wasn't going to use me anymore because he couldn't trust me. That's the way I felt. And it hurt because I let God down. I had two kids that were teens. I was going to have to go through, and I did the Mr. Mom thing for a while because they were very upset with their mother. Um, my family, I had to share it with my family. My dad passed this last year. When he passed this last year, he was married to my mother for 69 years. My two brothers had been married for 40 years. When we made a commitment, we made it for a lifetime. And, um, and when I married my high school sweetheart, I thought it was going to be for a lifetime. So that was a challenge. But the reason I share this story, and the reason I share the, the hard turn, is uh, because these seasons and these missions sometimes don't work out like we think they should. And one of the things that I did, <clears throat> I like the way Max Licato puts it. He said, travel light. And um, uh, what that means is, is the Lord will carry your baggage. The Lord will carry your burden. And in this particular case, after going through that, and while I remarried and she remarried and things worked out very well, and we had another child, and I had another child with uh, Lisa, um, my bride now for two decades or so, um, I would not accept the forgiveness of God for over a decade. I didn't even think about trying to teach. I didn't think about trying to share. I felt like I was just carrying that burden. But here's the thing. I know when I speak in a room there that I'm not the only one who's been through a divorce in here. And if there's anything that I could say to encourage you, it would be that to accept Jesus' grace, Jesus' forgiveness, put the bag down and carry on. Take your next assignment, take your next mission, and press ahead. So I was running after that. I was pushing ahead on the, on the personal front, trying to sort out what I was going to do, and I really had thrown myself into the business side. But business and faith, how do you put those together? How do you make that work? Because there are a lot of times when, a lot of times when you can speak intellectually about applying your faith, but when it comes to the four, how do you handle it and how do you walk it? So that family business that I described for you earlier, that I returned to, my two brothers were in this business, my parents were in this business, been in it for 30 years, and, uh, and we were able to increase the size of that business uh, materially five times in uh, just over five years, even though I've been around for 30 years. So it was incredible growth. We sold it to a uh, to a firm, it's a private equity firm that may or may not mean something to you, but um, if you look in the dictionary between uh, tiger shark and great white shark, you'll find private equity firms. They're listed right in there in the middle. These are guys that have dorsal fins and, and they're proud of it, okay? And they have teeth. Um, so they bought the company and then they get the rights to it. So, I, but, but my brothers and I agreed to stay on. When we go into the first, first meeting and I was CEO of the business and the chair of the board says, listen, Roy, we have decided that your eldest brother is no longer required. Now, he had spent over 20 years there. And uh, he said, listen, we know it's uncomfortable for you, but we're going to go, we'll, I'll, I'll go in and I'll have the discussion with him and, and, uh, and we'll, we'll get through that. And I'll tell you, that was a faith moment for me. Because uh, at that point in time, I said, listen, I'm going to tell my brother. This is the guy who led me to the Lord, right? I said, I'm going to tell him because he's my brother before he's your employee. And I owe him that respect. And there was no way that I could change their mind on that. 
didn't realize where these guys were going, but no way I could change their mind on that particular issue. So I did have the discussion with my brother, and as was, I should have not been surprised, he accepted it with incredible grace. And, uh, and we moved ahead, because they said, he's not able to run this business the way it should be. Well, 60 days later, I left too, because these guys were taking a business that was, had been growing a top and a bottom line by 30% a year for the previous five years, and, um, and making a six-figure number, uh, uh, pardon me, making a seven-figure number every month, and they, were, they had systematically, over time, found a way to lose six figures a month inside of 18 months. I get a call from the bondholders 20 months later, the people who had come in and provided financing for this, and they said, Roy, would you be willing to come back with your brothers? And so this team of people who didn't know how to run a business, my, bro my eldest brother in particular, we came back and we bought that business two years later for 2% of what they had paid us. <laughs> and my oldest brother, he took that and built it up and just uh, this last year sold it once again for about 130% of what we originally sold it for. There is a redemption associated with some of that. But I enjoyed, the, uh, enjoyed the business world. I enjoyed trying to mix faith. I enjoyed using a choice of language. I enjoyed making people uncomfortable with the fact that I would not use certain language in meetings and the fact that they had to really work to not use those words. That, that did give me some joy. There's a way that you can shine light. But while all that was going on, in the last business, actually, that I was engaged in, we sold it to Toshiba. And, um, or it, we were in the process of t selling it to Toshiba. It was about six months before the sale would be complete. And I had another very, very hard, hard, unexpected turn, one that was bigger than anything I could expect. And that was when we, my wife and I came to accept the fact that our youngest son wanted to end his life. Now that was sober and that was solemn. I remember sitting in the office when that happened and it's like time freezes and stands still. I remember what it felt like with the air conditioning coming across my skin. I remember hearing a clock that I wouldn't normally hear, the smell of the woodiness of, that, of the office. It just froze. It changed the way that I looked when I looked across and I would see the, the letter opener or the knife in the butcher block or the, or the belt in the room. It was hard. But we accepted the fact that we needed to do something. You see, what had happened is, is my son, who was so, such a... Uh, a type A achiever. I mean, this is a guy who was, who was on a roll, both sides of the football, brown belt. He wasn't a guy who got bullied around very much, uh, but, pardon me, pushed around physically uh, at all. Community service. He, would, he knew the scriptures far better than I did. But yet he was targeted. Because bullying is different. It was different when it happened five years ago. It's different today. But it's different from when I was a kid. Because when you would settle things on a... On a uh, on a field or you'd settle things behind the school or what have you, but when you went home, it was over. You might, you might come back the next day and have to deal with some things, but basically there was an interval of time and that's not the way it works anymore. He was targeted, um, there was a cyberbullying effort, a whole long laundry list of effort that I couldn't believe would wear him down. And here's the other piece that I would just share with you. Only two thirds of, pardon me, only one third of children who are being bullied will share it with an adult. And I couldn't understand what was going on with him. I couldn't understand why some of the changes. But it became very clear what we had to do. So we got on a plane the next day. We uh, basically took him to a place that would keep him safe. He was in a residential treatment program for a year. And then in a uh, therapeutic boarding program for nine months. It took almost two years to recover from this. 
He came back, I'm, I'm gonna, because it's not the purpose of the day, today's discussion, he came back from that, I will just tell you that uh, as a sophomore through senior, he knocked the cover off the ball, got his legs back under him, he's a freshman in, in uh, college, and so he has recovered. Um, and he has done really, really well, and I'm incredibly proud of what he's done. But it changed my life, changed it materially. Um, I was looking at the opportunities and the prospects when I went into Toshiba, and there was an opportunity. I, was, I, was, I served as chief strategy marketing officer there for a while in terms of one of their smart grid subsidiaries. And the opportunity for a CEO was coming available. And, um, and that was while he was coming out, he was getting ready. This is in October before he came out of therapeutic boarding school in May. And I turned to my wife, who was a five foot three, scrappy Italian young lady that I loved dearly. And I said to her, I started sharing with us the story with her about the opportunity that was coming, and maybe that was something that, that made sense. And the woman who always said, chase your dreams, said to me, your son needs you at home. And she was right. And I'll say this in this room full of guys, because if we had spouses, we wouldn't hear it, we'd keep hearing it again. But guys, sometimes the Lord speaks through our spouses to us. Amen? And that's a beautiful thing. And I just love the, the soft and tender heart and the way that she shared that with me. But it changed my life. So I resolved that I would retire. And I retired at the end of that year. And I have spent ever since that time, so that was 2013, I've spent since that time working on a, um, a bullying prevention uh, project and uh, focused on, on trying to drive that. Because there were so many things. When we went into that treatment facility, we thought we were the only ones. I mean, because how many other people do you know who have a child who wants to end their life or shares it? In this room, there might be some because people of faith will lean in on one another. But it turns out, at that time, a million kids, a million ninth through 12th graders, according to the CDC, attempted to end their life one or more times in the previous 12 months. And now, today, it's 1.3 million. Our children are hurting. And when I found out the statistic, when I found out the severity and the prevalence of that, I said, I gotta do something. But here's the other side, from a faith perspective. When I was on that hard turn and on this mission, this new mission, this new assignment that God was putting me on, I found out I had some biases. And those hurt. I'll share just one of them with you. One of the biases I had, I'd see young ladies that would have a bunch of tattoos in different places and up and down their arms, and I'd think, wow, don't they respect themselves? Now, I'm dating myself when I say that. But when I was out there at that treatment facility, and I was hearing the stories of ladies who, through no fault of their own, found themselves in incredibly difficult places, and I discovered that one of the reasons that they would put some of the tattoos up and down the insides of their arms because it would cover where they had tried to self-harm and cut themselves. And I realized that everybody has a story. God has everybody on a story. If you know the Lord, you have a mission. You've been uniquely made. Your, your, your skills, your experiences, the calling, the prompting, as Paul tells us in Acts, God's love compels us, compels us. And I can tell you today that while I have changed, I no longer chase the currency of governments. I'm chasing the currency of hearts. I'm chasing our children. And I'm looking at things that we can do. David shared we, there was an incredible reach, 1.2 million kids. We were hoping to reach a half million kids in Florida that first year. But God's hand was on that. It even showed up after the events and things that went through because when the CDC did the report that following summer, for the first time in the history of this state, 
the bullying rate, the cyberbullying rate, the teen attempted suicide rate all went down. There are only four states in the country that had that experience. We knew that something was going on. We knew that something was afoot. And that's God's work. Because only he could open doors two weeks before um, we were going to have that event. We were only in 25 of the 67 school districts. And the week and a half before that, someone was inspired in the governor's office and only by the hand of God. We had 65 of 67 school districts. That was seen in 34 states and 23 countries, only by the hand of God. And I thank him for that, and I thank him for what he is continuing to do in that particular area. But that's my mission. That's the place where I feel like I am called. I'm burdened with the kids' hearts. I don't know what your burden is. I want to share just some of the lessons that I learned in pursuit of the different missions that God had given me. And then I want to share with you one of the things that made the big difference in terms of being able to sense that and discern that. Some of the lessons that I learned was one is knowing God was mission one. I think I, I think I've made that pretty clear. Um, two is a mission may be for a season, and it could be concurrent. There was a time I was teaching. There was a time we were earning. It's not just you know, one path or another. There are times when you may be on multiple paths. And there may be times when they begin, and there may be times when they end. And if they end and you're making a turn, it's probably for a good reason. The other side is there's this prompting. I felt like if I did not, if I had not, if I had said no to supporting this whole Bullying Prevention Act, it would have been an act of obedience. And what's God's love language? If you love me, you will obey my commands, right? So to be disobedient was not to love the one who loved me first. So I had to do it. It was compelling to me. The other side is it required faith. And faith, you know, stepping out on something, nothing and finding something there type of thing, being sure what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, it was one of those things where <clears throat> God reinforced my faith after I took action, not before, because I didn't take any faith. And I just encourage you to take action. If you feel like the Lord's prompting you to do something, I'd encourage you because I'll tell you I've been incredibly blessed by that. And here's the other part. There's going to be difficulty. Because anytime you're taking ground on behalf of the Lord and you're holding his mission, his purpose, and his ministry in your hand with a loose hand, there will be an enemy who will come against you. And there will be challenges. Because, frankly, I take that as an affirmation. If I'm not feeling any headwind, I'm not doing enough. And we turn it up. When we find out, when we're going after these kids, I'm telling you, I, you may question my sanity because I just, we just got, after 34 years, we just became empty nesters last May, and then I go and I adopt 50 million kids across the U.S. Can you, I mean, you got to question my sanity on that one. But I'll close with how the, the pr a prayer, and it should come with a disclaimer, because frankly, it's so fundamentally changed my life, so fundamentally changed my life, that... Um, when I share it with people, I've now heard several stories about how it's changed theirs. And it's a very simple prayer. It's, Lord, help me to see the needs that you want me to meet. Originally, I prayed, Lord, help me to see need, and I got overwhelmed. I, walked, I was up there, and I'm at the Publix, and the lady's crying in front of me because she can't pay for her groceries. And I'm like, oh, wow, okay, well, I'll help you. And then I'm walking into Dunkin' Donuts. I'd walk by this gentleman all the time. He was a homeless man. I didn't know who he was. And then I'd come in and i find out, well, that's Paul, and he's got a story, and I need to understand that story. And what happens is when you start seeing need, I mean, I was on a plane, I was in a car, I was doing all this sort of stuff, and it was in a bubble. But when you start asking to see need, boy, 
There's a lot of need. And I realized and I got so overwhelmed, I had to condition it and say, what are the needs you want me to meet? And so I would encourage you today to do that. And thank you, gentlemen. It's been a blessing to me and encouragement to me to uh, have the opportunity to share.